Welcome to Engaging ESG, the podcast that considers what it takes to get ESG communications right and how it can go oh so wrong. It's season two and we're back for more. Once again, we're looking at real life examples of ESG messaging, some that will inspire and some that may make you cringe. I'm Jennifer Owens, Director of Marketing at Flow Carbon. And I'm Katie Callens, Lead for Sustainability at Adobe. In this 11-part series, we're delving into the complexity of ESG comms, industry by industry. We'll highlight lessons learned and share practical tips you and your team can use today as you navigate the evolving landscape of environmental, social, and governance topics. Let's get started. Welcome back to Engaging ESG. It's season two, and I'm Jennifer Owens. And I'm Katie Callens. Thrilled to be back on the mic with you, Jen. Oh, me too. We are diving into another season of real-life examples of ESG comms. So uh, we're going to have some good and bad stories, as well as a lot of fun conversation, because that's the whole reason I do this with you. <laughs> Absolutely. And so last season, as folks who listen to season one will know, we kind of laid the foundation of ESG comms. We explored audiences and stakeholders and companies that are trying to reach folks with their ESG comms. This time, we thought it might be fun to shift our focus into how specific industry sectors are navigating and, of course, communicating the sustainability landscape specifically. And in particular, Jen and I were interested in looking at industries that are technically hard to decarbonize, so ones that are a little bit more complicated than maybe the average industry. So that's what we're going to be focusing on. Because, you know, we don't want to go easy at any point. We want to make, as (laughs) Tina Turner would say, we like it rough. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Tina. That's right. Tina tells us. (laughs) Well, so, you know, every industry has its own unique approach to business and sustainability, of course. It's how they're making their money, how they're spending their money, but they also have their own lingo and their own specific ways of communicating and their audiences live in different zones too. Totally. And when it comes to setting net zero targets, which is the most common kind of climate target that companies are setting these days, let alone reaching them, some sectors or industries are much farther along than others. And so we're going to get into some acronyms in this episode. (laughs) We're not trying to scare you off with alphabet soup, but we do think it is helpful to understand kind of who are the major players in this space. And feel free to write in the comments if we got too deep into alphabet soup and we can try to pull And we'll do lots of links too. I mean, not too many because we don't want to make this totally homework, but enough to kind of, to give you a place to go if you need to look up some of this stuff. Exactly. And so with that that in mind, the Science-Based Target Initiative, which you'll hear often referred to as SBT, is a really important kind of industry group. It's a partnership between a number of different organizations, including CDP and the United Nations Global Compact. And what's important about SBT, or Science-Based Target Initiatives, is that they've developed methodologies, frameworks, and requirements for each major industry sector. So if you're coming from an airline industry or a tech industry, what fully decarbonizing and reaching your net zero target is going to look really different. And so we're using SBT's frameworks as our guide as we look at some of the most difficult to abate sectors. And difficult to abate is another way of saying difficult to decarbonize. All industries have carbon emissions, 
but which ones need a full shift of their business model to operate in a fossil-free world? And so then we'll get into a little bit of the details of how they're approaching decarbonization and what that means from an innovation perspective, like what technologies and resources are out there and what are they creating on this path to decarbonize? Yeah. And how they want to talk about it in the sense of some of it's very forward facing in the sense of this is they're investing in items that won't come to fruition for decades. And some of it, it's work they're doing now. And it's, you know, how do you talk about that? You can imagine people saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's for like 2050, which Mm -hmm. honestly, I roll my eyes at 2050 sometimes too, when I see those numbers, (laughs) but they're important. Because it's going to be exactly, <laughs> and I think from a communications perspective, it's also really interesting. Because then, how are sustainability teams, ESG teams within these companies pitching these solutions and right. these goals? Right? Like, I guarantee you, not a lot of teams are going into conversations with their CEO saying, "Have I got a plan for you? Let me show you like what we're going to do by 2050." They're going to look at you. <laughs> Right, exactly. In the face. And so there is this interesting balance around communication and getting buy-in from key stakeholders that really needs to frame it in, okay, what is our journey to net zero? And what are some of these like bigger bets, longer haul solutions? But then also, how are we doing that more incrementally? How are we setting those milestones so that other teams internally are understanding, okay, how do I roadmap this? How yep. do I resource this? And so that time frame can be challenging, but also an opportunity. Well, so we're recording this episode in the month that followed COP28, which is the big climate gathering organized by the UN. And in my work world now, which is the voluntary carbon markets, we had huge news that came out of it. It started off with Alexia Kelly at the High Tide Foundation calls it the alphabet soup. SBTI, VCMI, ICVCM, GHG protocol, like all these different groups agreed to come together to establish an end-to-end integrity framework that is meant to provide consistent guidance on decarbonization. And that's important in my work world because it's going to include the use of carbon offsets for residual emissions. And so each of these groups are holding a corner of what is the voluntary carbon market. And so to have them work together to reduce overlap, improve integrity, improve transparency and all that, it's huge for the work that I'm working on right now. It's a big deal for sure. It's really big. And um, they went into uh, COP with that announcement. That was their pre-COP announcement. It was like, my head exploded. And um, thank goodness we have a wonderful policy director who immediately sat me down and explained what this all meant to me. (laughs) Thank you, Adam. And then there are the Corsia approved standards bodies, the VERA, and this is all around carbon credits, VERA, Gold Standard, Climate Action Reserve, there's a bunch of them. And they announced they'll collaborate to establish consistent standards around quantification, verification, and permanence, which is big. It just let's all get our story straight about how we're talking about credits, how we're judging credits, how we're verifying, retiring them. And then the U.S. Commodities Regulator, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, announced its own guidance on carbon credits as well. And we had the commissioner at our event during Climate Week, and he was already kind of like forecasting that this was coming because obviously this stuff takes a long time to put into play. But These are all just huge moves that are designed to help remove barriers to companies 
that are taking responsible action to offset their carbon emissions, but then including the use of carbon credits, which obviously we support. So there's a great link from MSCI that I'll include in our show notes to kind of go deeper into any of these topics if you're interested. So, well, so that's what's happening in my world. What's happening in your world? Yeah, there's a lot happening in my world. I think I'll just note real quick too, following the heels of COP, from a communication standpoint, there was a lot of drama yes. with the oh, yeah. Secretary General. I feel like we have to mention this. Yeah, the Secretary you're right. General being the CEO of an oil and gas company, having it be in an oil-rich country, and there was a lot of back and forth of, you know, how on par, how authentic could these conversations really be by having this leader at the helm? Yeah. And I do think there's still a lot of analysis happening about what happened from the agreement. But another big win I want to call out that doesn't necessarily impact my day-to-day job so much, but I think is important to call out is the loss and damage fund for developing countries. That was a pretty big thing that came through. It's been a goal for a long time to create a fund for developing countries that are getting the impacts of climate change earlier than other developed countries and how are we supporting them They're earlier on their development journey. So that also came through in COP. And then there was the the word fossil fuels, reduction of fossil fuels was included in, in the final language. It wasn't as strong as some activists thought, but I think There's been some good arguments that have said more countries came to the table because there was an oil and gas CEO that was at the helm of things. I think there was also 4X the number of oil and gas lobbyists. Lobbyists, yeah. I know. We finally got to be part of COP. And I'm like, yeah, part of COP. Thank you very much. Exactly. So, anyway, for folks who are not deep in the climate policy world, I think what's good to take away is that. This is an annual event. There will be a COP29 and a COP30. And it's one of many tools that the global community is using towards climate action. And I recently watched a webinar by the CEO from Drawdown. And the way that he, Jonathan Foley, framed it, I really liked. He said, you know, yes, COP is important. Yes, the policy agreements that happen on the global stage are important. But really, you need to think about our commitment towards climate action, like a chessboard and cop and policy levers are one stage or one kind of, you know, chess move on this much larger board. We also need to think about, you know, because it's all voluntary. So then you have regulations in country by country. In the EU, we have the IRA that was passed this year. In the US, we have business action. And so it was a good reminder to me that like COP gets a lot of media attention mm-hmm. and it definitely sucked some of the air out of the room for all of their climate stories for a bit. And it kind of does that on an annual basis. And there were some big wins that were got, especially in terms of framework alignment and the loss and damage fund. Yeah. But that doesn't change the impact of all these other actors and, and businesses taking action. Yeah. And then it, then the attention has to come back to all this private business that is generating this and working towards these things. It's very influential, of course, but the work is happening in the private sector as well. A lot of important work. Yes. And they see the private sector, they talked a lot about this as like, you know, kind of a leading indicator of where mm. governments should go. 
And because the language needs to be agreed on by all member states, it can be pretty hard <laughs> to yeah. get stuff through. Think about how hard it is to get your family to decide on what you want for dinner, let alone, <laughs> you know, 140 <laughs> member states. <laughs> well, and isn't it kind of thrilling to see them arguing over language? I always, mm-hmm. you know, it, it can take away the, you know, how important all of this is. It is thrilling to me to say, wow, this is the power of language and that this is why they're all getting involved in this. So, and then you're like, oh my goodness, strengthen the language, people. (laughs) Totally, totally. And policy is definitely helpful as like a guiding effort, but it's not going to be super clear about exactly what to be done, which actually leads nicely into your question that you asked me probably 20 minutes ago. About what sustainability stories are impacting my work. And so I am based in California and on the West Coast, we've been talking a lot about this new California climate disclosure legislation. And so without going too far into the weeds, and we'll we'll add some links for folks who want to learn more, we discussed in season one climate disclosure legislation coming out of the EU. There's a policy called the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, CSRD. And we mentioned also last season that there's a lot of different ways that companies are already reporting on their climate goals and greenhouse gas emissions through their CSR reports, through CDP reporting, the like. And these have all been voluntary. Hmm. And so then what you have is coming in from Europe, pressure to actually report in a very specific way with CSRD. And then in California this year, we had a host of laws passed this fall that are kind of loosely being called the Climate Corporate, uh, the, the California Climate Corporate Data Accountability Act. And so oh, that just rolls right off the tongue. So, right? yeah, they definitely got marketers <laughs> on that for sure. But there's kind of a host of legislation within that that Adobe we've been looking at, and obviously all California based companies have been looking at. And one is around. GHG disclosures needed by 2026. Wow, that's fast. It is fast. And I think what's interesting about these legislations that ask companies to report is you have companies like Adobe, like our former employer, Meta, and some other folks who are already doing that. And Mm -hmm. this law isn't necessarily targeted at those folks. It's people who are not looking at their broader climate goals. They don't really see the relevance. And now there is legislation asking them to do it. Yeah. But then there was another piece of this kind of block of legislation that was passed that I also wanted to call out because it was very relational to our discussions before, which is this bill called AB 1305 that focuses on voluntary carbon markets and greenwashing claims. Yes. So tell me more. (laughs) Yeah. So basically it's trying and there have been greenwashing laws in Europe too, which we talked about last season, Mm -hmm. but I think it's really trying to look at, okay, if your company is making a claim that you are net zero carbon neutral or similar, you need to be able to show very clearly how you are significantly reducing your company's greenhouse gas emissions. And it's also creating kind of more comprehensive disclosure requirements around folks who are buying or selling carbon offsets in California and really focusing on anti-greenwashing. There's been a lot of news and media about kind of the downside of some carbon purchasing schemes that are not verified. And so this is kind of attacking that. And there was discussions before about a 
US-based climate policy that would focus on GHG emissions, disclosure, greenwashing. And what's maybe not so surprising is that it's now showing up in California. Right, right. (laughs) And so as we discussed last season, there hasn't been a ton of consistency with how companies have been disclosing their climate targets in updates, partially because the regulations haven't been clear. And so now with climate reporting and disclosures, we're seeing things go in a familiar direction. First, you know, a stake in the ground by progressive governments in the EU who have a functioning legislation who passes laws. What a concept. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Wait, what? Yeah, I know. It's this thing where the government runs and can fund itself and doesn't constantly need to Running out of money? Oh, interesting. Running out of money. Yeah. Yeah. So that's happening in the EU. And then we've gotten some push from the US government, but then there's actual action being taken by progressive state governments. And this is usually seen in California or New York. And what is impactful about that is that so many major companies operate in California. Yeah. Any laws that pass in my home state often help accelerate the push eastward towards DC. And so I think that's what we'll expect to see for broader national legislation as well, which is has big ramifications. For sure. And it will, because we always bring it home to comms, it will change how we talk about things publicly because you'll want to be, you know, I when I was a news reporter, I would always say there's like the the trunk of truth and fact. And you kind of, when you're starting to make, you're starting to opine what it means, you go further out on the branch and you don't want to fall off the branch or have it break. But so you'll see people, I'm sure, hug the trunk tied to the reporting requirements, I think. Yes. So th- that'll be interesting. Yes. And I think one of the other things that we're starting to see is that not only are companies going to be asked to think more thoughtfully about what their climate goals are, how they're reporting on GHG emissions, but also to build relationships with legal departments because yes. now it's becoming not voluntary, but required regulations. Right. Which is interesting because I've, I, in talking with other places when I was looking for a job post meta, how many of the ESG comms roles were under legal or like financial communications and how many were tied to the sustainability team? Hmm. It was almost a lottery. You never knew which one it was going to land in. Yeah. So maybe that'll become more standardized. Maybe we'll see. Yeah, I think so. I think it just kind of reinforces some of what we talked about last season about really making sure you have friend and colleagues on the policy side and the legal side, because they're probably monitoring this work as well. So if you can work together. It it doesn't matter where it lives if you're all working together in a sense. Exactly. Well, one of the other big news stories, as you can tell, I'm carbon, carbon, carbon all the time, but the Biden administration updated its social cost of carbon figure. And so this is a number uh, that estimates the cost of damage created by each additional ton of carbon emissions as well as the estimated benefit of any action taken to reduce that ton of carbon. So it helps to figure out the cost of mitigation versus the cost of damage. So, And right now, the cost has been set at $190 per ton of carbon emissions. And this is up from $42 during the Obama administration and $5 during Trump's administration. And This is important because you'll now see it included in annual budgets and when they're doing permitting decisions and 
when they're dealing with foreign governments and doing foreign assistance uh, budgeting? Yeah, this is a really important thing to call out. Thank you, Jen. Because I think many of us are familiar with the concept of tragedy of the commons, where we've just kind of throughout history counted nature as a free input to production, which leads to a lot of pollution and degrading of environmental assets because there was no cost associated with it. You know, if you don't put a cost to it in our modern day, people don't really understand its value or, or add that input into the budgeting of larger projects. Yeah. But considering that the U.S. alone experienced 25 confirmed climate disasters with losses exceeding over a billion dollars this year alone in 2023. Amazing. The cost of climate change's impact on society today is incredibly clear. Like, I don't know if you need a clearer number. Numeric. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, dollar value. $1 billion for just one year is pretty wild. And I think many of us also have heard that it was the hottest year on record. So that, so that aligns. And so- yeah. You know, according to the U.S. National Centers of Environmental Information, this is also the highest number on record. So this is definitely something we're paying for. And so it's great to see that this price per carbon is reflecting that. And it's a number I I will assume that that number will continue to shift as we get better at accounting our own impact. It's funny, you know, we're always talking about communicating and messaging and the like, but you're seeing this whole other world of accounting become of rising to the fore on accounting the cost of carbon at least and and how the numbers better reflect what's happening. But so right. there's a there's a mathematical work that's going on in addition to the the lingo and the communication work. And and so this is also going to help with our storytelling, of course, because we will have better facts to work with. And as someone who covered business for a very long time, these research numbers, these trend numbers are so important to say, to put context around anything we do. And my pal, Anna Lerner, the CEO of Climate Collective, the way she puts it is, if you're accounting for less than $190 as the cost of your pollution, you're not accounting for the full cost of your negative impact on the planet. Simple. Yeah. It's really so true. Because, you know, none of these research reports or trends or accounting is happening in a vacuum. The companies that we work with and see how they're working are really kind of sailing in these seas in real time and trying to navigate changing stakeholder expectations, both internal and external, quite frankly, that are mm. asking hard questions. And so that's really what we wanted to focus on this season, talking about not only specific sectors, but specific leaders in those sectors or showing how sustainability can give at the heart of a company's strategy, as well as be integrated throughout the organization, really helping to build a business case for growth and trust and reducing risk and cost. And, you know, Ceres, a sustainability advocacy nonprofit, has found that while 94% of S&P 100 companies acknowledge the science of climate change and 93% consider it a material risk factor, almost 30% lobbied against some policies consistent with the Paris Climate Agreement. So we're definitely not saying that it's easy, right? There's a bit of a a disconnect around how people are thinking about climate planning and also where where their advocacy goes. And so we know that our listeners truly have their work cut out for them. 
from tackling conflicting messaging to addressing growing concerns over greenwashing, as well as new anti-greenwashing legislation, understanding exactly what they mean by that, if they understand what they mean by that. That's a whole (laughs) other conversation. For sure. But we all want to ensure, you know, that our sustainability programs, our ESG work aren't serving as a mere cover for shortcomings, but really supporting a strong ethics and governance program internally that will make sure that businesses are really moving the ball forward. Because, you know, we want our work to lead to more companies telling more sustainability stories with more authenticity. It's that simple. Yes, definitely. Because... As comms professionals, we believe in the power of content and communications to really drive impact, but that needs to be matched with the need for companies to set realistic goals, offer transparency into their work towards those goals, and of course, fostering a holistic approach to the work. Right. Because there's no story to tell if you're not actually doing the work. Yes. (laughs) I don't know if you said that in every episode last season, but it's what my takeaway was from you last year. Definitely. Please do the work before you start talking about the work. <laughs> Your creed occur. I love it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but no, I'm really excited about season two. Looking ahead, we're going to be deep diving into some of sustainability's most interesting and difficult industries to decarbonize. Yeah. And I hope our listeners are looking forward to joining us as well. And we'd love to hear from you about any sustainability news that's impacting their work or questions you might have for us around ESG comms. Yeah, for sure. Me too. Drop us a line at engagingesg at gmail.com. You can ask us a question. You can share your news. What's impacting your work right now? And let us know how we can help. And be sure to join us in the next couple of weeks as we fly into our first industry. And keep engaging. Thank you for joining us on Engaging ESG. Have a question for us to consider or a strategy you'd like us to cover? Email us today at engagingesg at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Engaging ESG today. It helps us grow. And even better, be sure to share the podcast with your favorite sustainability, diversity, or social impact colleague. And until next time, keep engaging. Keep engaging.